Hey, Justin. Yes, David. I've come up with a way to save the TV industry. And what is that? A new podcast all about TV shows and the people that make them happen. Good. When are we going to start it? Ten seconds ago. This is TV Show and Tell. Welcome to TV Show and Tell, the podcast for anyone interested in how and why television gets made. I'm David Bodicombe. And I'm Justin Scroggy. And we're two television consultants from the UK. And it's a rather extra special episode today as we go into the makings of one of the biggest TV hits of all time, The Weakest Link, the quiz show from the year 2000, hosted by the fearsome Anne Robinson. Coming up, we have interviews with Will Charles, who helped devise the program's iconic lighting design, and Aaron Solomon, who helped bring back the show to the USA. But first, me and Justin chatted with Len Sutcliffe, who worked at the BBC when The Weakest Link was in development. Lynn, thank you for coming on to the show. Absolute pleasure, David. Thank you for having me. How did The Weakest Link arrive at your desk? Well, it arrived um, in the form of a letter. Um, We got a letter from Finton Coyle and Cathy Dunning. There was something about it. I mean, as I'm sure you know, it was a pretty nascent idea at that time. It was all about winning days of a holiday. But what Finton and Cathy had put forward was um, this idea of building chains of correct answers. And that's really what kind of captured our imagination, really. So just to just to explain, so Finton is a, a doctor and Cathy is a, a stand-up comedian, I believe. Yes. My understanding was that Finton was sort of watching TV one day when he had a really bad back. Well, I think he'd been told he had to lie flat for a year. Wow. A year? Oh, my word. I think it was a year. Um, so he said, right, I'm going to try and do something useful in this time. I'm going to watch telly and I'm going to try and have a really good idea. Correct me if I'm wrong, but was was this sort of part of like a slush pile of loads of other ideas that you had to go through and sort of like 99% of them were rubbish and you had to sort of kindly but politely, firmly say, thank you, but it's not for us or... Absolutely that. We did read everything that we got and very occasionally there was a little gem tucked away in the middle, which was the case with Finton and Cathy. So you said that this was originally people working together effectively to try and win days of a holiday and and if i understand right was was it meant to be apparently over a course of a week is that right that's right yes so we kind of consolidated the whole process really and the rounds rather than being 40 minutes long became two and a half minutes long the whole voting off thing was really the genius moment i think really But we used to workshop all our ideas. We used to actually stand them up and play them. And I remember playing it for the first time and saying, oh, I'm just waiting for the exciting, but I'm just waiting for the end of the round. Mm. So we need to make it much sooner. We need to make it much shorter. And then we realised that the whole thing could be consolidated into one programme, really. And the voting off. I had just seen one of the very first episodes of Survivor. Mm. And I remember somebody writing someone's name on a piece of paper and holding it up in this little voting booth. And I remember thinking, oh, that's a rather exciting thing. Um, And so I can remember being in this development room at Television Centre and saying, should we try that? Should we try 
like writing people's names down if we don't want on the team anymore. Would that work? <laughs> and it seemed to work. <laughs> That's quite a brave thing to do, to take something that was a week and condense it all down into one show. And it seems it seems really obvious and logical that it's sort of almost a bit like Taskmaster in, in reverse, <laughs> where yeah. what they've done is they've taken one show and, and stretched out into a whole series, effectively. <laughs> yes, that's, that's a really good point. I mean, I think that's the luxury of having proper development time, isn't it? Which so many, you know, small indies struggle with now. You know, we were at the BBC, we we're in-house. We were given time to play around and do run-throughs. What, what kind of timescale are we looking at from this letter arriving at your desk to, say, the first pilot being made? Gosh, now I'm sure there's people with much better memories than me, but it was all relatively swift because we used to concentrate on a programme for, you know, a week or two until we felt we'd got it right, and then we'd take it to a run-through stage. And we actually played that for Jane Lush, who was head of daytime at the time, um, we played it in an office for her. But then we did we did the pilot and the next order after the pilot was 67 episodes. Wow. <laughs> um, you know, the like of which we shall probably never see or hear again in our lifetimes. And it's an intensive show to write for as well because it's quite fast paced. Even though there's chatty bits, there's a, a lot of questions in there. A lot of questions. Um, I mean, most of the time at that stage, we weren't as such writing for Annie. We were we were chatting through the contestants and we were putting, you know, thoughts in our heads. You know, he's a geography teacher. Wouldn't it be awful if he didn't know the capital of Finland? Um, but we weren't necessarily doing the same sort of writing as happens. I, I went to America and did the uh, the American pilot with Annie and later on the American series. Um, mm. And obviously the whole writing process there was a bit more intensive. But we were more kind of... Um, when you're working with somebody like Annie, you get her voice in your head, don't you? And you can start to suggest things that she might want to say. And she had that whole lovely line she used to go down of, you know, you're as much use as an ashtray on a motorbike as a chocolate teapot. You know, she, she used to... Um, and so we used to invent those for her. The so-called slams. Yes, um, but not quite such a formal writing process, probably. So how early did Annie come into the mix? Quite early, actually. With the American one, I did, I did several pilots with several different hosts. But with Annie, we, we took Annie to the Scout Hut at Shepherd's Bush Green. And um, I ran it for her. I... I, I was Annie, and right. um, then she had a go. Once we'd seen her do it, we knew we didn't want to consider anybody else at all. <laughs> it was just like one of those moments where you just think, ding, yes, come on, everybody, join us in this vision. And they did. So is, is that the moment where you sort of thought, well, actually, this might be a hit? or But like, did you think it was going to be as big a hit as it was? No, I mean, they did a very, they kind of snook it out there a bit, really. I think David Young and Jane Lush decided not to make a big fanfare about it. And they just kind of, they just kind of sneakily put it out there. And it just gradually became this kind of huge Titanic of a beast that got mentioned in Parliament and... I knew when I went down to my Christmas market the following year and they had rip-off Weakest Link merchandise <laughs> um, that we had made it. I mean, that must have been 
I mean this sincerely, that in, in some ways that must have been quite a proud moment for you that you've you've helped create a national institution. Oh, definitely. I mean, it's what we all dream of, isn't it? Inventing things or being part of inventing things that become part of the national conversation, really. Um, and I don't think it happens many times in a in a career, so I have to really treasure it. And that's why I was so delighted to go to LA with it and kind of, you know, carry on trying to see its journey through a bit. So as we know, there's been uh, many international versions of many international hosts, um, some of whom have been um, clones of, of, of Annie. Um, were you involved with that? Yes, I did actually train quite a few of the international hosts, um, which was a really fascinating thing to do. Um, and took some trips to see, you know, other versions being recorded around the world as well. Um, I remember there was one story in, I think it was Turkey, when they had a lot of technical difficulties with the first recording, with the with the lights and with the sound, and um, there was a rather her suit man as the host, and we started recording at kind of ten o'clock that morning, and we were still recording by about midnight, by which time he'd actually grown a full beard <laughs> um, because we'd actually been recording in the end by about fifteen hours. So when they actually edited it together. He looked completely different at the beginning of the show than at the end. Um, and I remember after we'd gone to America and done the um, the version there, they had a kind of craft table in the studio, you know, the the snack table, which we which was um, became very popular with the team. And uh, when we went to, oh gosh, which version was it? I remember we thought there was a snack table and we started nibbling away and the team went mad and they said they were offering to the gods for a good recording. Um, um, International kind of producers were nibbling away on these carrot sticks, which were actually the gods offering. Um, But that was So, yes, lots of stories from around the world there. And did you have to train? I mean, when you say you're training people, I mean, Presumably, in some countries, they the idea of the host being uh, nasty to the contestants was was equally as unusual and new. Did you have to push people a little bit to to be a bit harsher than they would normally be? Well, we very much made that the brands that you you right. were smart, you were sassy. This was your arena. It was a bit like you know the host was the ringmaster or mistress going in. And they had to marshal it, and they had to be in, they had to be in charge. Some people find it really hard to multitask in the sense that because you have to turn the podium <laughs> because mm. the podium rotates, and you have to get a kind of rhythm going, don't you? Because because Annie's actually turning around to face the different contestants. Some people find the multitasking really really hard to actually you know, read and turn and rotate and keep frowning. Um, and it was a, it was quite hard with some people, genuinely. Yes, I, I actually saw Jane Lynch having a bit of a struggle with that in the first episode of the New American version. Yes. She sort of turned and then she turned back and then she grabbed the podium and then she turned again. Yes. I remember the Americans saying to us, can't it be automatic, the podium? And I was like, it's just, <laughs> just getting the rhythm of it. You just, wow can't have somebody pressing a button to make the podium rotate five degrees yeah i wanted to know how do you think the show evolved over time the format evolved over time i think it became slightly more pantomimic didn't it really Mm -hmm. um 
if you look back at the early shows, um, we did a little montage on the last show of Annie kind of over the 12 years. And she wasn't as formulaic and she wasn't as harsh and she wasn't such a villain at the beginning. That kind of that kind of evolved, I think, really. And the whole sense of people wanting to come and have a go and see if they were harsh enough to take her on and potentially, you know, beat her. Um, mm. I think that sense of, um, are you brave enough to come and try and take Annie down was something that kind of went on as it developed, really. So they were almost competing against her rather than against each other. Yes, yes. Because you weren't going to win particularly life-changing amounts of money. I think the average prize in the beginning was... I think it was 2,300 for the first kind of year or so. So lovely to have. Great. But, not, you know, you weren't going to you weren't going to give up your job and, you know, move to the country on that. Um, mm. So I think it was more like a badge of honour. Yes. Every quizzer in the world wanted to have a go, didn't they? And there yeah. was all sorts of kind of strategies involved. I'm going to wear grey and I'm going to keep my head down and we're going to hope people don't notice me. I'm not going to be too good. I'm going to throw the occasional question and you know, um and that classic thing of people going, Well it's not fair because when the final three get there, they vote off the really good person. And but that's the format. That's how it worked. We we absolutely celebrated that, I think. Right, that's interesting. So you celebrated the fact that that sometimes they would vote off the strongest link. Absolutely. Yes. Mm. Because it was, you know, it was quite a strategic game as well. And obviously we heard the stats at home where they realised that Justin is in fact the strongest link. You know, they didn't hear that in the studio. So sometimes people would go under the wire. Do you think the show works as well with celebrities playing for charity as opposed to members of the public playing for money? I think it's different. And I think it's all to do with the nervousness around putting people down at this time, actually. Mm. I think it was really interesting when, you know, last year all those clips surfaced of Annie being very rude to some people in the past and, you know, single mums, etc., which all felt right at the time, but perhaps wouldn't feel quite so appropriate now. So I think it's easier to be cheeky and take the mick out of other celebrities the style of it, in some ways, began this thing of almost putting nighttime feeling shows in a daytime slot. Yes, well, that's exactly what we tried to do because we were saying, why does daytime always have to be pastel and warm and friendly? So we kind of we kind of flipped everything on its head, really, because normally quiz show hosts were incredibly supportive and very nice, and when you lost, they'd say, "I'm so sorry." but you have had a lovely day, haven't you? Um, and so we just reversed everything, really. Um, we had this pitch black studio with all those lighting beams breaking it up, incredibly dramatic music. A host who was only going to wear black there was going to be no lilac cardigan, cardigans to be seen anywhere. Um, <laughs> and, you know, we were going to be quite rude to people, probably ruder than um, I suspect Ramesh is going to be. Uh, yes, so he's hosting the remake. Do you feel positive about the remake or do you sort of kind of wish that slightly left it alone? Well, we're in such a time of nostalgia, aren't we, because of what's going on in the world that I think people want brands that are familiar and make them feel comforted 
And um, I, I'm glad they're they're reinventing it. I don't think it would have been right to try and bring it back with Annie. I think she had her 12 years, I think it was, 12 years. Um, so I think it's it's really great that it's um, taken a completely different turn. And I I have seen very little of it. I haven't really had many sneaky peeks. So I'm, I'm very, very um, excited to see how it all turns out. Lynn, we must have you back because you've got such a fantastic CV. <laughs> so please come back on the show. Uh, but for now, thank you so much. Absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. And we'll hear more from Lynn next year as she's going to come back to say lots more about her television CV. But now we have an unusual take as we examine how the Weakest Link's lighting design somewhat came about by accident as we talk to lighting director Will Charles. Okay, so we're joined now by Will Charles, who's been lighting up our screens for uh, a couple of decades or more as a highly experienced lighting director in the light entertainment genre. He's recently lit uh, Lightning, uh, Mock the Week, Taskmaster, parts of Britain's Got Talent. But Will, I want to take you back to the year 2000 um, and the beginnings of The Weakest Link. Now, I believe that you worked on the pilot of that. Is that right? I did, yes. Uh, gosh, it seems an eternity ago now. Um, but um, yes, there were, as I remember it, there were three pilots that um, BBC Entertainment were doing in, in the same week. And at the time, I was working um, pretty much all the time with Mark Kenyon, uh, and he was asked to light those three pilots. And I was... Uh, I, I was I, I had a very busy week and I said oh no Mark I don't think I can I can make that and he said uh, oh go on please do do, do try um, and so uh, I did and uh, we turned up in TC2 and um, my memory of it is that uh, Patrick Doherty who still is um, a designer to this day and Mark had got an idea together with, um, I think it was Ruth Davis, who was um, producing um, right at the beginning. And they had the idea, because it was a circular set with Anne, obviously, in the traditional layout, I, th I think probably only seven guests at that time. But the idea was that they wanted to shoot it in the round. So they put a, a circular gauze in, shark's tooth gauze, and the idea was that um, the camera shot in through the gauze and it might have worked in a larger studio, but in TC2, it was just too small and we couldn't keep the key lighting from, for, the, um, for Anne and for the um, contestants off the gauze. So the whole thing became incredibly flary and just didn't work at all. And uh, uh, we persevered with that right the way through the dress run, I think. And then at the last moment, it was decided that the gauze had to come down. It wasn't working. And so it would have been a completely black studio otherwise. Um, so Mark had the genius idea of going out to the television centre Ring Road and getting seven, eight moving lights in that had just come off top of the pops and putting a, a beam of light behind each person. Um, and that really was the, the, the genesis of the, of the look. The idea was, I think, it was to keep it as dark as possible, but just sort of, as you say, hide the cameras behind it. That was the idea. So the pilot then became a series, um, and you had a chance to kind of perfect the lighting. So what was what did you do then? 
we went to Capital Studios. And by that time, uh, I think Patrick had actually sort of built the, the, the set and the rostra. And I don't know why Mark wasn't there, um, but Chris Kempton was asked to do it. But he also had a clash on the setup days. So he asked me just to do it. it um, so Chris had always intended to, um, to join it later, um, but left me to set it up. Richard Valentine was, um, was directing. Uh, as I remember it, Rich and I put the whole, really the, the 80% of the look that lasted largely for sort of 20 years um, together in an afternoon. And um, we experimented with some colours and some looks and particularly the walk of shame, which um, again, I seem to remember Richard wanting to be in yellow, but um, I don't think that didn't actually <laughs> make, the, make the grade. Um, but um, so, yes, I mean, that was the, the basic look was put together then. And really from then on, I lit both the, um, the daytime BBC Two shows and the prime shows all the way through to 2012. So what I'm always interested in uh, as a producer, when, you, when you've taken a new show into the studio, um, I always watch the crew. Uh, to see what their reaction is, because they've seen it all, they've been there, they've done it, they've sat through far more far more pilots than I have that haven't worked. What was the reaction of the crew? Even then, I can remember thinking it was probably a good format, but because it had been, we'd been so concerned in trying to make the pictures work, and we were obviously uh, going up a, a cul-de-sac with the with the gauze. Um, mm. We were probably quite stressed about how how it was looking, so I didn't probably pay much, that much attention to the format of the show. But I can remember distinctly uh, during the first series at Capital saying to a friend that I thought this was a really good format and that it would be very successful. I think you said it to me, actually. I may well have said it to you, <laughs> yes. <yeah. laughs> um, I do remember you saying, you know, I think there's something... I think there's something really special about this one. When you're dealing with quite long runs of shows, you know, over a hundred shows, to what extent can you automate the whole process and uh, what things do you have to go in and tweak in between individual shows? That's a very good question. Um, well, in the case of The Weakest Link, it's over over 2,000 shows, I think we did in the end. But that's something that, that has evolved over the last 20 years. As quiz shows have developed, uh, uh, they're now much more complicated in the way that everything is tied together um, with uh, MIDI and um, computer control, uh, you know, the actual um, question companies sending triggers to sound and to lighting and to viz effects and all sorts. So that's that has evolved over the period. But back in sort of 2000, um, it was very much in its infancy, um, and it's something that I rather fought against, actually. I thought that, for one thing, Weakest Link, although once it's edited, packaged, it's very, very slick, particularly in the early days, it used to break down all the time. And the trouble is, if you automate everything, then it just takes so long to reset um, when you're going back and forwards, you know, finding a place to pick up from. So I rather, I didn't go down, want to go down that line too much. I wanted to keep it as manual as possible. Um, and I thought that um, one or two skilled operators would be much, much quicker at resetting. And also uh, reacting to camera shots and to, uh, to music as well. 
I think that um, there's a sort of a fluency that comes if you can, you can sort of second guess uh, answers and time ups um, and, um, and the whole thing becomes more slick if you've got two operators who are really across it in that respect. But things are far too complicated now um, and manual operation has become almost impossible. So, um, Justin, you mentioned lightning and lightning is very much um, triggered by Kirk Brightwell. Once we've actually programmed it, largely we are the Kirk's yes or no answers trigger lighting effects and sound effects. Um, so things have moved on. One of the things we're interested in in this show is how all the different elements of a show affect the format itself, how they how they drive the story. If you think about the the lighting plan for Weakest Link, how do you think that it tells the story of the show? Again, it's a historical thing. I mean, until Weakest Link and to a point, um, who wants to be a millionaire? Game shows had always been pink, fluffy, lovely events with everybody, hosts being lovely to contestants and uh, everything was lovely. And suddenly, to an extent, well, even even a Millionaire, you know, Chris Tarrant was always lovely to do, but, but, but Anne came along and it was, it was a different, different feel that it was suddenly much more challenging um, and much more confrontational. I always thought that the that that was reflected in the in the look um, of the, the lighting of the show. Um, the other thing that set wise game shows in particular, but TV shows in general, had always had large built constructions, and budgets were always were getting so tight at that time that uh, I think producers and uh, controllers were always looking to be able to put together a show which didn't have a very expensive set and everything that goes with that setting time, et cetera, et cetera. So such a minimalist look, I think, went down very well politically at the time <laughs> um, and also suited the, you know, the, 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 the challenging nature of the show. So just the stark beams and the stark colours, you know, all pretty much shot against black, certainly when it came to the daytime show. So in some ways, the, 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 the lighting was the set because the lighting was the, the sort of background against which everybody was being shot against. Absolutely, yes. The lighting and the, and the structure of the set with the beams of the lights, um, which of course was also the beams of the lights don't show up unless you've got smoke in the air. And um, smoke has been always the black art of Weakest Link, as so many shows, uh, getting that perfect level of, of haze in the air so that the beams show up without suffocating everybody and getting everybody coughing. Um, <laughs> Let's just explain to to people who don't necessarily know. So it's not it's not literally smoke, and people are not. No, well, it, it's it's haze. It's it's particles, very fine particles that are generated by what is called a smoke machine or a hazer. These machines are, and the product you put in them is perfectly safe uh, to be breathed in. But yes, those fine particles then catch in the light and produce the the beams of light that certainly Weakest Link very much made the most of. You've made the Weakest Link in a, in a variety of different conditions. What was the most difficult? Without a doubt, the most difficult of the lot was the beginning of Series 2, when we moved from Capital Studio, which was a, a proper TV studio, to Magic Eye, which was a, uh, a photographic studio in Wandsworth. Um, and... Um, 
that which really wasn't geared up to do uh, multi-camera television to start with did the first show and um, the smoke got completely out of hand <laughs> down there um, and um, I, I seem to remember Mel and Sue being on it and um, I, the lighting absolutely murdered them both and I can only apologize if either of them ever watched this show it's something I've, I still have sleepless nights over. Um, it was not great. And um, it's where actually I found Ollie Lifley, who has become a, a lifelong friend and colleague of mine, who um, he was one of the electricians down there when we turned up. And um, I asked him in desperation. I was trying to do the whole thing on one lighting board and um, was really struggling. So I asked him in desperation with uh, whether he could operate a lighting board. And um, he lied and said yes. And, um, and uh, the rest is history, and he's now one of the best lighting operators in the in the country, uh, if not the world. Well, that's great, uh, Will Charles, lighting director extraordinaire. Thank you very much for joining us. My great pleasure. We're grateful to Will for his insight into the world of the lighting director there. But now, finally, we have Aaron Solomon, a highly experienced game show producer who helped bring back the show for American audiences with Jane Lynch, the actress from Glee, as the host. Let's hear from him now. And I'm delighted to say that we're now joined by the co-executive producer of the US revival of The Weakest Link. It's Aaron Solomon. Welcome, Aaron. Thank you, David. Pleasure to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. Um, so the decision was made to bring back The Weakest Link to US audiences. So. Um, what format changes did you look to keep and which ones did you ditch? Uh, well, it's, uh, it's funny you mention that because the initial, uh, job that I was hired for was for a few weeks and it was expressly to try to come up with different tweaks to the format so that, um, BBC could go out to the networks and try to pitch them on. Yeah, it's an all new and improved version of weakest link. Um, the original executive producer of the U.S. version, Stuart Krasnow, and I were both hired uh, to spend three weeks developing potentially a new version of Weakest Link, a new and improved, if you will. So the BBC, was it the BBC that actually hired you? And this is before it even, anybody had agreed to buy it. Yeah, before it sold to air, it was uh, BBC Studios uh, in the U.S., which uh, had the, was representing the rights um, brought us on board for a couple of weeks of consulting. And it's not uncommon to do that. I've, I've been hired a few times to, um, like, let's say, what if we brought back Deal or No Deal? What would it look like? How would it be different? That sort of thing. And mm -hmm. so in, in this case, they hired us for a couple of weeks. And so the first thing we did, of course, was try to remember 19 years ago how we did the show, because I was a writer on the uh, Ann Robinson version in the US. And uh, Stuart was one of the executive producers. So we had to first, first kind of go through all our old paperwork and go, how did that work again? Oh yeah, that's right. And then what was the order of you know voting and this and that? So, and then we started putting it on its feet. And um, the first change that I wanted to make, um, and I thought this was something that had always bothered me in the original format was, um, what they would do after the round was over is they would reveal each of the players votes and then they would have Anne talk to them and sort of berate them and i always thought it would be more compelling if that conversation happened before the votes were revealed because then there was this aura of uncertainty of you know when i'm saying david you know you're a podcaster and you missed this question about mark Marin or whatever it may be 
But if you're sitting there and you know that there were four votes for Justin Scroggie and he's out, well, there's sort of a lighter interview. There's really not as much uh, drama um, and suspense there. So we played with that. We found that that worked really well for us. Um, we got genuinely good reactions. Um, and then a big thing that we tried, and, and to be honest, we have still been floating around during um, the various, each season we sort of test it out and see if there's a way to do it, is to try to ensure some sort of immunity for the strongest link. And the reason that we, we looked into that is because one of the biggest complaints viewers gave to us was that almost like clockwork, uh, one player would emerge as the very clear dominant trivia player and once it started to get down to four or three players, it was pretty clear that everyone else was going to gang up on that person and knock them out because they didn't want to eventually lose to them. So we've played with a couple different ways to do that. But as I'm sure the creators discovered early on, too, there, there's a kind of a push pull there that, um, you know, there, there are pros and cons to that um, that are very kind of nuanced. So. I wouldn't say we've abandoned it completely, but it's something that we're definitely still trying to explore because we're always trying to, um, you know, take what is a very good format and see if we could find a fun new twist that, that might just add a, a good new wrinkle that would be entertaining and satisfying for viewers. And obviously a key difference that you have in the States compared to the UK is that you've got less runtime to work with. So right. how do you work all the mathematics to make sure that you know, you've got a decent number of contestants, but not so many that you can't fit them all within the time frame? Right. Well, I know back in the uh, early 2000s, uh, when on the success of the network primetime version, there was a uh, syndicated version that ran for two years. It was a half hour format. So they reduced the number of players uh, per episode from eight to six. And uh, that seemed to work pretty well. But um, now that we were doing the hour long format again, we, you know, we wanted to keep the eight players. Um, but one of the things that we found was useful, especially when we brought on Jane Lynch as host and we knew that we wanted to have time to um, include a lot of her comedic reactions and exchanges and that snarkiness is uh, we decided that we needed to um, lose a round. And the round that we looked at was the cash building round. And I know this is a source of much discussion on the message boards and, uh, and, and whatnot, because the cash building round was designed originally to incentivize the team to keep the strongest player on board, because if they're there, uh, once you're head to head with that person, you can build up as much money and then that money is doubled uh, in that round. So it's it's really your, your incentive not to get rid of someone who could potentially add a lot of cash to your total. On the UK format, so this is the round immediately before the head-to-head -head right. where in off version, we you tripled the money. Oh, is it tripled? Okay, yeah. In, uh, in the version that we did in the US in the early 2000s that we were using as precedent, um, you would have six elimination rounds, and then the seventh round would be a cash builder round where no one was eliminated, but all money that was banked throughout the course of that round going back and forth would be doubled. Mm -hmm. um, and the, the purpose for that um, was to, in, again, to incentivize players to not vote off the strongest person so that hopefully if it comes down to you and this genius, you know, they'll help you build this bank. And then with any luck of the draw in the final round, maybe you'll get good questions and knock them off. Um, we looked at it as um, 
from a dramatic standpoint, um, it's the only round of the game where nobody gets eliminated. So the stakes from a viewer standpoint are not as high. It, and, and that's another thing that we looked at as well as the arc of the show. It, it is a very repetitive show because you're basically just answering a lot of questions, you know, in a circle uh, until time expires. And so we also had in the six um, elimination rounds, something that we did is rather than uh, keep a $125,000 top prize and, and an identical chain from round to round is what we did is increased um, the chain values from round to round. So it felt as though the stakes were building monetarily as well. So in our version, the first round is uh, a top prize of 25,000 and then 50,000 and then so forth. And it builds up to a half million dollars in the final head to head round. So we felt that by having that arc in there, it would be anticlimactic to now suddenly be like, and now here's a round where nobody can leave. And you know, there's really no, no drama there. Um, that piece of it also allowed us to skew the question difficulty in such a way that if a team truly is brave enough and, and smart enough, they could run the chain by getting eight straight answers correct and nobody banking in the early rounds. And budgetarily, the network could afford to do that, whereas the questions are much harder later on. It's not undoable, but obviously it's way more challenging in a, in a quarter million and half million dollar round to, to get eight straight correct answers. So we, we felt that, that um, it, it added for a nice build because I think that was the other sort of main um, complaint, if you will, that people had with Weakest Link is that it just felt too samey. And we, we wanted to make sure that from round to round, there was really a sense that it's getting better and better until the final showdown head to head. So the set itself um, is quite a radical departure from the, the previous template of, of The Weakest Link. Um, was that purely for aesthetic reasons or also for sort of format structure reasons as well? Uh, yeah, actually, our set designer, Zaya Maurer, did a fantastic job, I felt, in, in reimagining it while sort of keeping the same spirit of this sort of circular thunderdome of trivia, if you will. Um, there were really two kind of driving forces behind the changes that we made. Um, the first of which was um, when we developed the show, or we started to develop it, this was February of 2020. But by the time it sold, this was now May of 2020 and COVID had taken over. And we began to realize that, you know, if and when we're able to shoot this thing, we won't have a live audience. And I know that the original version, part of the sort of aesthetic that made it feel very um, daunting and foreboding and different from other shows was that you would have uh, the entire audience all dressed in black and they were asked to sort of not react or laugh or do anything. It was it was really kind of almost a precursor to Handmaid's Tale in some ways. Um, but um, not being able to take advantage of that, we wanted to come up with something that felt um, you know similarly intimidating. So the theory we came up with was almost like a multi-tiered futuristic sports arena where um, many of the arenas in the US, I don't, I don't know if the UK has done this as well, but um, in each sort of level or colonnade, um, there would be a strip of LED along the side. So, you know, if somebody hits a home run or scores a basket or whatever, it would kind of animate and have an effect. But otherwise, it would sort of like fade back into darkness. And by doing that and creating those sort of rows, what it does is it calls less attention away from the areas in between where normally people would be sitting. But in our case, it's sort of darkness. So it kind of creates this uh, illusion that 
you know, there may be people there that we just can't see. Hmm. Um, and indeed, you know, if we do get to a point, hopefully um, in the world where we can bring people back, then adding them into that structure will not be so jarring because it will feel like, okay, now people are finally sitting in these stadium seats. Um, so that was kind of part of the aesthetic of uh, the background. And uh, the other big change that we made, and, and this is something I'm, I'm proud to say that I, I introduced much to the financial chagrin of everyone involved, is um, it had always bothered me that when someone got eliminated, um, they would sort of walk past the host and then just out of frame. And what I always wanted to know is, well, where did they go? Um, and you know, that's because the show, you know, was shot in 180 degrees and you weren't really able to see the backside of it. And I said, you know, I always sort of envisioned it would be really cool to have this tunnel, like a portal. Um, and we started sort of mythologizing this really from early on in the, in the reboot, um, of imagine that's this portal that it's almost like a portal to and from hell <laughs> and the show starts with this host from hell coming out of hell to sort of terrorize people for an hour. And then once you lose, you go to hell, um, you know, and of course we pitched that and they said, the hell metaphor might be a little too on the nose because we played <laughs> with the idea of there being flames and things in the background. And I said, that's, that's probably might offend a few of the more religious folks too. Um, but then we sort of were like, well, okay, well let's soften it a bit. Maybe it's so, sort of like a stranger things kind of a vibe where it's this abstract world that they, you know, go to, that's, um, kind of like the upside down. Um, and so if you notice when we built the tunnel, um, there's an led screen behind it and it does all sorts of things to kind of, you know, it's warmer sort of as you're coming out and then it's colder as you're sort of descending, um, into the, the nether world of, of wherever we're sending you. I remember that warmer, colder sort of device uh, a little bit from Survivor. Yes. In fact, uh, I actually consulted uh, on a couple seasons of Survivor, um, and that was something that, that sort of stuck with me, too, from Mark Burnett, is that he really believed that the color palette of a show was um, enormously subconsciously important. And, you know, they would talk about the fact that Mark would go on and on about, you know, if you notice when you're watching The Tribal Council, um, everything is, um, you know, torches and warm reds and, and, and oranges and yellows. And then as soon as someone's eliminated and you see them walk off, all of a sudden it's always blues and purples and dark greens mm. and stuff. And it's almost like their life force was going out. And, you know, it's not meant to be something that you process intellectually, but it's sort of a feeling that you get um, as you're watching uh, that, that really reinforces um the journey, the humanistic process of, you know, you had life force, you, you failed, it's been now taken from you. And, and then you, you feel the impact of them leaving, not just sort of seeing it. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it, it was really neat to, to sort of design that. The trade-off for that is that it necessitated us building a set that was 360 degrees. And that was a huge cost and, a, and uh, you know, a lot of uh, for, uh, practical considerations for camera placement and whatnot. But thankfully our director, Ashley Gorman, um, we you know, worked with Zaya and we, we figured out a terrific place to, you know, to keep our techno crane, to, to have that sort of signature shot that we're able to sort of hide uh, a little bit when we did the reverse shot and we actually saw them going through the tunnel. Um, and then we had some, just some cool camera movements to kind of follow them around so that there, there really is more of a mythology as to, um, you know, where they're going to and coming from. 
Fantastic. Well, uh, Aaron, we must have you back on the show again to talk about all of the other fantastic shows that you've worked on. So, uh, but uh, for now, thanks very much for talking with us. I appreciate it. Thanks so much. And that's it from Justin and myself for this week and indeed this year. Thanks for all your kind comments, questions and feedback. We will be back in 2022 with more news, views and interviews about the world of television. In the meantime, please do like, review and subscribe us wherever you can. And remember, you can follow us on Twitter at TV Show Podcast or email us via contact at tvshowandtell.com. I've been David Bodicum. And I've been Justin Scroggie. And this has been TV Show and Tell. From us both, Merry Christmas. <laughs>